When I do weddings, I use what people often call the traditional vows. I'm not a fan of the the man-made vows. I'm not judging you if you invented your own vows because you're romantic and you want a career with Hallmark or whatever, but I like the idea that weddings are something, the vows are something that's been handed to you. You didn't invent them yourself. You're inheriting something from other people, but hey, to each their own. It's a gray area, I confess. But most vows have this phrase in it, which you promise to uh, cherish the other person, to care for them, to love them in sickness and in for richer or for? For better or? Huh, see, you guys all know these, right? In that act, you make a covenant that is a lifelong commitment. And in a godly marriage, you recognize that the strongest times are often in the sickness times. The strongest times are often in the poorer times. They're often in the, the worst times, as far as the strength of your relationship goes. And that's been my own experience personally where in times of sickness, it's a time of, of focus on serving the other person. There's something about the sickness element that demonstrates the other person's need and that, that brings out your servant desire. You know, on, on Wednesday, you don't know if the husband might not have the desire to serve his wife, but his wife gets really sick on Thursday, and suddenly the husband, you know, fancies himself Superman, flying around and taking care of the kids and trying to keep things under control. Where was the cape yesterday, my friends? <laughs> But sickness bring, brings that out. I remember uh, Deidre, when she was uh, pregnant, was uh, very sick and on, on bed rest. And honestly, looking back at it, we've talked about this since. It's been some of the sweetest times of our marriage because she couldn't, you know, do anything. And so it was a time for us to read together and to, to pray together. We read books, read whole series of books together. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't do that much anymore. Now that everybody's healthy, it's not like we're going to sit back and and read through a whole, you know, novel or something. But when there was sickness, and I guess before children too, that was a lot easier to do. Sickness has a way of making you focus laser-like on how you're supposed to serve the other person. And I don't think it's just true in marriage either. You see that in your own personal life. When you are afflicted with sickness, it has a way of driving you to prayer. Again, to use the example, on Wednesday you were healthy, but you weren't much of a, of a prayer on Wednesday. Uh, Thursday, suddenly you're sick, and, and suddenly the Lord, you need to pick up the phone right now because something important is going on. Sickness is a way of drawing you to the Lord. Here's a simple way of putting it. When you're healthy, you're not praying for the Lord to heal you, right? <laughs> that makes sense. But when you're sick, suddenly you have something to pray about, or to use a different example. When you're wealthy, you're not praying, give us this day our daily bread. Or if you are, you don't really mean it. You're just repeating it. But when you are not wealthy, when you're in the poorer phase, then you pray that and you actually do mean it. When nobody is mistreating you, you're not working through all the ethical implications of how to forgive those people who have sinned against you because you can't think of many off the top of your head. But when people are suddenly mistreating you, suddenly you become an expert in Jesus' ethics. <laughs> You start really wrestling through, what does it mean to forgive this person? Do I have to forgive them before they ask or after they ask? I mean, you're wrestling with godly questions that you weren't doing when nobody was mistreating you. And so, like I said, in a wedding vow, you promise to stay with the person 
for better or for worse. And what's interesting is oftentimes trials creep into marriage in the better phase rather than in the worst phase. And I know your mileage may vary. Some couples may see the opposite and see that the sickness or the difficult time is where their marriage gets stretched and, and where they do need counseling. But that hasn't been my experience. Many of the, counsel, the couples that I have counseled, it's definitely been more on the, you know, when things are healthy and there's promotions at work and you're rising through the ranks and, and all of that, and you quickly forget your family and you quickly forget your relationship with the Lord. And spiritually, life is just like that. This is why James often talks about God is uh, determined to give spiritual blessings to the poor uh, in this world. He'll make them rich with spiritual blessings because he's glorified through that great reversal. He's glorified by showering his love on the hands of the world, by showering his love and choosing David, not the, the stronger older brothers. I mean, that's typical Yahweh. That is typically the way that he works. And that's what we encounter here tonight in 2 Kings chapter 20. And this is a, just a wonderful chapter because you get both vantage points in Hezekiah's life. You get the sickness vantage point and the health vantage point. You get to see what his relationship is like with Yahweh when he is sick, and you get to see what his relationship with Yahweh is like when he is healthy and strong and invincible. And I think it provides a window into our own hearts. Because when you peel back Hezekiah's flesh here and you look into his heart, what you see is that when he was sick, he was devoted to Yahweh. When he was sick, he was clinging to him. When he was healthy, he was proud. When he was healthy, he was arrogant. When he was healthy, he was foolish. Now this is a, a, just a fascinating section of scripture. I've, I've mentioned this the last few weeks. We've looked at it, chapters 18, 19, and 20. It's repeated three times in the Bible. The same section is told in 2 Chronicles, it's told in Isaiah. And just to kind of draw that, that out for you here, if I were to split you all up and tell you all to jot down the 10 most important events in American history, and, and maybe put you in your groups of four, and all four of you, would, uh, all four groups would come with their own list of 10 influential events, none of your lists would match each other. Nobody would have, no group would have the same 10 things. But I bet most groups would have three or four things that would be the same. When you look at the Old Testament or in the, the synoptic gospels in Jesus' life, you see this exact dynamic. I mean, the, the feeding of the, of the thousands, that's in all our four, four synoptic gospels, but a lot of other events aren't. And in the Old Testament, similar thing. This is just about the only event that is told three different times in the three different Old Testament synoptics, if you will. It's described in Kings, it's described by Ezra as he writes Second Chronicles, and it's described by Isaiah, who was a first-hand witness, had a front row seat to these events. He'll feature in our story tonight. So it's not just that this is a major story in Israel's history, but what, what strikes you is how personal this is. This whole narrative arc here starts in chapter 18 with the declaration that Hezekiah was the best king Israel ever had. And then it follows chapter 18 and 19 and 20 with stories of his compromise. And so you're kind of sitting in the back of the classroom and you want to raise your hand and say, I, I have a question. If we have three chapters about this king... And it says he's the best king they have, but the three chapters are filled with compromises of this king. How can he possibly be the best king they've had? And the answer to that is similar to how you would deal with David. David was a man after God's own heart, but that declaration is made in Scripture, and then you see all of his compromises. And so you think, well, what makes him a man after God's own heart if he's only sinning all the time? Well, because when he's confronted with his sin, he repents. That's what makes him a man after God's own heart. 
The standard for following the Lord is not sinlessness. It's being quick to repent, eager to repent, and to, to re- restore your relationship with the Lord. And that's what we see with Hezekiah. Now, as I mentioned, this little chapter here, this little section of, of uh, these three chapters, they're a significant event in Israel's history recorded in three different places. And that makes sense with chapters 18 and 19. I mean, this is a massive battle. This is, Judah thought they were going to be exiled. The Davidic line was going to come to an end. The Assyrians were at the door. We looked at this last week. The Assyrians were heckling Hezekiah through the wall. And the prophet came. Isaiah said, don't, you don't need to worry about them. God will take care of you. And it, I mean, it was 150,000 against a, a dilapidated wall. This did not look like it was a feasible battle for Judah to win. They went to sleep. The angel of the Lord came, killed all the, the Assyrians. They scattered into the night. They ran away and never to be heard from again. It's a massive military victory. So you would understand why this is such a key feature that is repeated all these times in the Old Testament. But chapter 20 is different. It's part of that same package, so it's repeated in all three places. But it is not a national story here. What you see in chapter 20 is not about the nation surrounding Judah to bring them into captivity. What you see in chapter 20 is the king getting sick and praying that he would be healed. That's what you see here. And it also provides the answer for our riddle. Why was Hezekiah such a good king? Why was he so highly esteemed by the Lord? I have two points in outline. Tonight, let me give you the first one now. Trusting God in sickness. Trusting God in sickness. That's what we see where we begin and we get a window into Hezekiah's trust in God. When he fell ill, he turned to Yahweh. In those days, and this, those days here, it's speaking of the, the angel killing the 150,000 Assyrians and the, and the havoc that he uh, wrought in chapter 19. It's a very loose phrase in those days. We're actually going back 14 years, and that's important for you to have in your mind. If you're reading all these three chapters in a row, they're not chronological. That's because the author has got an agenda here. He's trying to present a moral lesson from Hezekiah's life. He's not a history book where he's working progressively through the king's reign. He's teaching you about the life of Hezekiah. And so these events, there is an importance to the order that they're in, and it's not chronological. This confuses Americans because we like chronology. Uh, We want the things to go in the right order. We want the date stamp. The date is important. That's what you memorize in history class. Who cares about morals? That's for some other class, philosophy or something. I don't know. But the dates are not, are what are important to Americans. Not so much for the the author of scripture here as he is giving you these events in a thematic order. Chapter 18, Hezekiah is declared to be a good king. Then he's surrounded by opponents. Chapter 19, God rescues him and delivers him. Chapter 20 rewinds the tape a bit and shows you long before the Assyrians were knocking at the door, a window into Hezekiah's heart. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah the prophet The son of Amos came and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, set your house in order, for you shall die, you shall not recover. This is a pretty straightforward rebuke from a prophet. Isaiah has done this kind of thing before. Isaiah is used to telling kings they're going to (laughs) die. And so Isaiah rolls in, tells the king, it's all over for you. Uh, Get your house in order. He doesn't even tell him, pray. He doesn't say go worship. He doesn't say seek the face of the Lord. Perhaps the Lord will have mercy on you. Isaiah just sizes him up. You know, prophets kind of doubled as doctors back there. He sizes him up. He's like, oh, this is bad. <laughs> See you later. And you know that's bad if you're in the, the hospital. The doctor walks in and looks at you and is just like, oh, <laughs> peace. <laughs> uh, and that's what happens to Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah responds in verse 2 by turning his face to the wall and he prayed to Yahweh. So Hezekiah prayed anyway. This is what he prayed, verse 3. Now, O Yahweh, please remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart. 
I've done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Notice that he does not even ask Yahweh to heal him. He doesn't say, God, because I've done good, do good to me. That's not the kind of logic he's using. He's merely presenting some facts to Yahweh. And this is a very bold prayer, isn't it? I want you to understand something critical in verse 3. Listen. It is amazingly freeing if you're at a point in your spiritual life where you can tell the Lord, I am serving you with my whole heart. And I know that most, most people aren't there. Many people who profess Christ are not at that point. Many people who profess faith in Christ keep a little part of their life for themselves. Just the little things in life. You know, they've got these hobbies they don't want the Lord involved in, these sins they don't want to repent of. They just have a section of their heart. Maybe it's their goals, what they want to be when they grow up, or their aspirations, or whatever it is. It's their own motivations, their own desires. And it's different for every person. But the truth is, if you're being honest, there are many people who have sections of their life that they have not given over to the Lord. They just haven't. They go to church, and they sing songs, and they pray, and they fellowship, and they go to Bible study. I mean, they will do anything. They'll give money to the church. They'll do anything as long as the Lord stays out of that little part of their life. And as long as they can keep the Lord out of that little part of their life, they're happy. They can be thoroughly devoted in 99% of places the Lord wants them to be devoted in. But there's just this one little section of life that is not for the Lord. And I'll tell you what, if that's you, it is... It's a burden that you're carrying on your shoulders. It's a burden you have when you're walking around. It's a burden you have in the morning in your Bible study, in your prayer life, and in everything. It just vexes your conscience and it plagues you and it's not a good place to be spiritually. I'm telling you, it is tremendously freeing for you to let go of your own plans and agendas in life. For you to say, Lord, I, I mean, this is, this is my desire of what I want to do. This is how I see my path going. But honestly, Lord, it is yours. And if you turn the car a different direction, I'm all in. I'm buckled up, Lord. <laughs> You're in the driver's seat. I'm in the passenger seat. Let's roll, Jesus, because I'm giving my life to you. There's freedom in that. If you can't pray like Hezekiah prays, I'll tell you, the only thing that's keeping you from praying this kind of prayer is your own heart. It's your own recalcitrance. It's your own timidity. It's your own fickleness. I mean, just come on in. Jump in the pool of following the Lord with your whole heart. The water is fine. <laughs> come on in and swim in this pool. Because, I mean, just look at the freedom he has. Lord, please remember, I've walked before you in faithfulness. And in my whole heart, undivided loyalty, Hezekiah says. Now, he's not saying he's sinless here. Don't misread him. Hezekiah is not dumb enough to stand before God and say, just so you know, God, I've never sinned. That's not the model of faithfulness. The model of perfection is not never sinning. Hezekiah really is serving like his father David, who did sin, but was quick to repent. And Hezekiah knows this, and he says, Lord, I'm here with my whole heart. It's not a perfect heart. But it's a heart of faithfulness, and it's a heart of obedience. I have done what is good in your sight. I'm telling you, when you're there, you're not afraid to die. When you're there, you're not afraid of trials. You just belong to the Lord. Now, Hezekiah wept bitterly. I say he doesn't, he's not afraid to die, but it's not that he's eagerly seeking it either. And he's at the height of his reign. Israel has been taken into captivity. Hezekiah is, is wanting to serve the line of David here. He doesn't want to die. He's not afraid to die, but it's not like he's, he's running headlong into death. And I think you're, you're it's not a, a black or white scenario here. It's nuanced enough. I think you understand where his heart is. 
He loves the Lord, but he's broken about his impending death, and he, he cries out to God. And this is a bold prayer. As I said, notice the content of this prayer. God, I'm faithful to you. <laughs> I've got this sickness to me, and I'm handing it all over to you. This is the way David often prayed. It's the pattern of the Psalms. You remember God's faithfulness, you present your faithfulness, and you ask God to put the two together. I love the Psalms. I, I read many of them this afternoon of, of David's prayers and trials, where you know David's prayers often go like this. God, you're faithful. God, remember, I'm faithful, and now, God, look at all these spears pointing at me. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you how to fix this problem, God. I just want to make sure you know about it. <laughs> if you need me, I'll be here writing psalms. <laughs> I mean, there is boldness in that kind of prayer. And that's how Hezekiah prays here. Yahweh, remember me. I've walked before you with the whole heart. I've done good in your sight. And he wept. Well, before Isaiah had even gone out of the middle court the word of Yahweh came back to him. So I'm going to picture Hezekiah's room, like the atrium right here. And Isaiah walked in and met with Hezekiah in the, let's say the atrium, the middle court, would be the hallway out to the parking lot, before Isaiah had even, you know, passed the bookstore to the shuttle. You know what I'm talking about? He's just right around the corner. Yahweh's voice comes to him and says, not so fast. Turn around, Isaiah. That phrase is the word for repent. It's God telling Isaiah, hey, do a U-turn, my friends. <laughs> Prophet, get back on in there. And say to Hezekiah, the leader of my people, thus says Yahweh, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. Behold, I will heal you. On the third day, you will go up to the house of Yahweh and I will add 15 years to your life. I'll deliver you in this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria. And I will defend the city for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. That's the promise that Isaiah is told. He says, Isaiah, go back in there and tell him. Now, did God change his mind about this? I don't think so. I don't think the Lord had communicated, to, clearly not to Hezekiah. It says in verse 1, thus says Yahweh, but that's in quotes. It's from Isaiah's lips. Isaiah is the one who declared that. He likely was speaking for the, the Lord and his prophet, but without revelation from the Lord. I think it's the best way to make sense of this. Because Isaiah doesn't hesitate. When Isaiah, he doesn't pull a, pull a Jonah here. He doesn't argue with the Lord about this. He, he just told, and this is humbling for the prophet, isn't it? He just confronted the king and said, oh, you're going to die. Uh, I'm going to leave. And go find the next king, anoint him. And as he's on his way out, he's told to turn around and come back and say, oh, never mind, you actually have 15 more years. Again, if the doctor did that to you, it would be a little bit humbling for him, right? I guess better to have the air in that way than the other way, though, I suppose. You know, get your house in order, you're going to die. Oh, never mind. Actually, now that I thought about it for a second, you're totally fine. But Isaiah doesn't hesitate. He comes right back in. And this, you'd expect to see some more nuance in Isaiah's description about it because he writes the story from his perspective in the book of Isaiah. And he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate there either. The word of the Lord came, comes to him. He goes right back and tells the king exactly what you, what you see here. You've got 15 more years. 15 more years. And he's going to do this for David's sake. So notice here that Yahweh sees the connection between David and Hezekiah. There's a straight line connection here. David was a man after God's own heart. Hezekiah prayed, bringing that kind of language, whole heart in verse 3, into the equation. God knows all this. I mean, God wasn't, this wasn't new news to God. Like, oh yeah, I'd forgotten Hezekiah was godly. I, I will heal him. This is all done for Isaiah and Hezekiah's benefit. And so Hezekiah will have his life 15 more years. It sounds brazen, but I hope you can pray like this. And, and when you pray with this kind of boldness, again, he's not even asking to be healed, but when you pray with this kind of boldness, God often answers with boldness. And instead of a funeral, you have worship here. You have worship. There's a problem here, though. 
If you have a, a boil, which is what Hezekiah has, that's described in Second Chronicles, he's got a boil, you're not allowed to go into the temple for seven days. Once you're diagnosed with a boil, it has to be clean for seven days, then you have to present yourself to a priest, the priest has to declare your boil healed, and then you're allowed to go into the temple and worship. Uh, I remember uh, when I was in Manila in the Philippines, when I was living there and doing, uh, doing ministry there, I got bitten by a flying cockroach. Um, you don't have cockroaches here in, in Virginia like they have in the Philippines. I mean, our cockroaches here, we have some. Um, they're not even as, as gnarly as the Los Angeles cockroaches. I think they get nastier as you move west. <laughs> uh, some of the cockroaches here have wings, but they don't use them. And the cockroaches in Manila are like hummingbirds. I mean, those things fly around your room, and they often find you at night. And uh, so the story goes, they're attracted to your, to your knees, and sometimes your eyebrows too, because they move when you're sleeping, I guess. Don't know, but that's what people say, and they bite you there. That's the story. Again, if that's wrong according to biological standards or whatever, I don't know, that's what everybody says. And they looked at my knee and it, it grew this, I'm not going to describe it to you anymore than that, except that people would see it and go, oh, you got a cockroach bite. Yeah, apparent, apparently, <laughs> I did. And so I got sent to a lady that I'm going to call uh, euphemistically, uh, I think her technical title would be a, a witch doctor. Uh, I, don't, you know, I don't think she was actually part of a cult, but she took these, these leaves I think they were tea leaves or some kind of leaves, and I don't know, I don't speak Tagalog very well, so I don't know exactly what was happening. She wrapped them around my knee, she poured hot water on them, I think it was boiling hot water, that was, uh, she said, don't worry, the leaves will absorb the pain, okay. Uh, after that, I went to an actual doctor in a white lab coat with actual medicine, uh, who gave me wicked Americanized antibiotics, so I don't know which healed me, I don't know if it was the Americanized antibiotics or the tea leaves. Or a partnership between the two. It's the two worlds. They meet there in Manila. You don't know. But it took, it took almost two weeks for it to go away. Here, Hezekiah is told, you're going to be healed. And in three days, go to the temple. Now, there's a serious consequence if you go into the temple when you're unclean. Hezekiah knows this because his dad went into the temple when he was unclean. And that did not go well for him. He lived the rest of his life in a, in a shed, remember? with leprosy, which is God's punishment for him for going to the temple in an inappropriate way. And so there's a problem here. The prophet Isaiah could be setting Hezekiah up. Go into the temple with your boil? Yeah, right. And so Hezekiah has a basic question. Well, verse 7, first Isaiah says, bring a cake of figs. That's the, the equivalent of the leaves in hot water. And let them lay it on the boil and he'll recover. Here, Isaiah is giving uh, instructions to the servants there. Well, Hezekiah hears this and says, uh, question. What shall be the sign that Yahweh will heal me and that I'll go up to the house of Yahweh on the third day? In other words, I want to I know what's happening here. I want some proof here. Give me a sign. Now, there are two very different ways to ask for a sign in life. There's the non-believer's way of asking for a sign, and they like to choose impossible things like, oh, if, you know, God, if you wiggle the curtain, then I know you exist, and then I'll believe the gospel. And non-believers don't actually want signs, remember? Because even if God did wiggle the curtain, they would be like Gideon. He'd be like, no, I meant the other curtain. And non-believers don't actually want signs because then they're, they're held accountable to that. So they throw that out there all the time. Oh, if only God gave me more revelation, then I would believe. If only I opened a fortune cookie and I said the gospel is true, then I would believe the gospel. It's not too hard of a request if God is sovereign over fortune cookies. But then they open the fortune cookie and it says, you know, trust the gospel. And you're like, eh, I met yesterday's fortune cookie. That's the way non-believers are with signs. And so God doesn't give them signs. But you do see a godly way of wanting confirmation. And I don't know if there's a one-to-one -one application for us in this, although it is often the case that you, you know, pray for opportunities to evangelize and the Lord gives them to you. 
you, you pray, God, if you would open the door for me to share a gospel, I would love it. And then somebody, you know, asks you a question about your church or something. And you're like, oh, that's, that would be the, the modern day equivalent of that kind of sign, I think. But here, Hezekiah is getting new revelation from a prophet, and this revelation contradicts the description of the Levitical law, how the, the cleansing process and all that, and so he wants a sign from the Lord. Now, flashback here, we're not in the book of Isaiah, but flashback earlier with, with uh, I believe it was Ahaz, who was a wicked, awful, bad king. Remember, Isaiah came to him and said, you are going to get delivered by the Lord. And I promise you, ask me for a sign and I'll give it to you. Ahaz did not love Yahweh, and Ahaz says... I don't care about signs. I don't want a sign. And he cloaked it in the self-righteous language, like, oh, I'm, I'm way too godly for a sign. Of course I trust God. Ahaz didn't trust God. And so Isaiah rebuked him. This is Isaiah chapter 1. This is how the book of Isaiah begins. Now you're going forward to this other king, Hezekiah. And I mean, this has got to bring joy to Isaiah's heart. <laughs> Isaiah says, you're going to be healed. And Hezekiah says, okay, give me a sign. Give me a sign. <laughs> it's like he's read Isaiah 1 already. And so God, God through, Hezekiah, or through Isaiah says, okay, I've got a sign. Verse 9, this will be the sign for you from Yahweh. The Yahweh will do the thing he's promised. Let's choose your own adventure here, Hezekiah. <laughs> Should the shadow go forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? Now the king's courtyard here had a sundial on it. It cast a shadow uh, across the center of the room, and that's how the king could tell time. You know, I don't know uh, how... Their, their clock timekeeping functions back then, but the king had to tell time. He had the timepiece set up there and the shadow would move across the floor of his, his room. And so Isaiah asked the king, do you want the shadow to jump forward 10 steps or back 10 steps? And I find this line actually quite funny. The funniest thing Hezekiah has ever said, I think. It's an easy thing for the shadow to, to lengthen 10 steps. Rather let it go back 10 steps. You see why that's funny? Oh, it'd be easy for God to just jump the shadow 10 steps. <laughs> is, that, is that Okay, I can see my shadow on the floor right here. I guess it's easy if I move my hands. <laughs> How do you get a shadow to jump forward? Ten? You wait an hour, I guess. <laughs> if Hezekiah would have said, oh, I'd like it to go forward 10 steps, Isaiah could have said, okay, wait an hour. <laughs> then your sign will be answered. That's not easy to make it go forward 10 steps. They're both equally impossible, but I guess getting it to go backwards 10 steps uh, would, would require moving the earth backwards or who knows how God did it. But that's what he asks. So you're not jumping forward in time, you're jumping backwards in time. And of course, there's all kinds of symbolism in this. It's not just that time goes, shadows go longer. That's what happens. It's a natural course of life. You go older and you die. So maybe Hezekiah just means by that, of course, anybody can go old and die. I want to get younger. Give me that sign. And verse 11, Isaiah, the prophet, called to Yahweh and he brought the shadow back 10 steps so which it had gone down the steps of Ahaz. The sign confirms that God is faithful, that Isaiah is truthful, and that Hezekiah is righteous. All three of those confirmed by the shadow. God is faithful, Isaiah is truthful, Hezekiah is righteous. You know, we often think that when we pray, that we're prying blessings from God's hand, and if God is reluctant, God is not reluctant to answer prayers. He's eager to hear us. He's eager to bless us. The Lord is eager to hear from from. Hezekiah, eager to answer his prayer, eager to let him live. This is not, again, a one-to-one -one correlation here that if you pray for healing, you'll be healed, or you can ask, you know, you can start bossing shadows around. That's not the right application. In fact, that would be a sign of unbelief today. You start bossing shadows around today, it's showing that you're not believing the written word of God. I joked earlier when I said Hezekiah must have read Isaiah 1. Obviously, Isaiah 1 hadn't been written yet. This is a reasonable request from Hezekiah dealing with the prophet. Now that Isaiah and the word of God is written, we don't ask for signs. But nevertheless, the principle behind the sign is true for you. 
that when you are praying to God, you are not arm wrestling blessings from God. You're not the kid asking for candy from his parents who don't want to give candy at 10 in the morning. You're the kid asking for candy from his grandparents who's eager to give it. (laughs) More M&Ms? Where's your mom? In the other room? Go ahead. (laughs) I see the grandparents laughing over there. When you're approaching God, you're approaching a God who is eager to give blessings. Hezekiah is a king who trusted in Yahweh better in sickness than we're going to see him in health. We just saw him trusting God in sickness. Now, point two, sinning against God in health. We saw trusting God in sickness, now sinning against God in health. At that time, verse 12, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters to present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah welcomed them. And by the way, Isaiah and Second Chronicles makes it clear he didn't just hear about the sickness, he heard about the shadows. He heard about the signs. And so suddenly this king of Babylon has this new interest in the king of Judah because after all, he can get shadows to move around. That's worth a visit. So he sends him letters. That word letters is a euphemism for bribes. You know, if you get pulled over by a state patrolman, he asks for your license and you say, "Ah, here's my license and I have this little envelope here for you too with some cash inside of it. It's just an envelope, a gift from me to you that you might call it a gift, but it's actually called a bribe and that is very likely to get you arrested perhaps. That's what this word letters means here. It's, it's a gift for, for Hezekiah. Now, I don't want to bore you with the geopolitical... I, I want to bore you with the geopolitical circumstances in this chapter here. It's important to understand. Judah is this country. It's going to be attacked by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the global powerhouse. Nobody's heard of the Babylonians yet. This is our introduction in Scripture. The Babylonians come on the world stage right here. They're the nation that's eventually going to overthrow Assyria. But... I mean, it's likely that, that Hezekiah doesn't know much about them now. If he's heard of them before, perhaps he's forgotten about them. He just doesn't know about them. These are new kids on the block here. He's got the Assyrians that are beginning to surround him. They're going to put him under siege. And now he gets the Babylonians coming and say, hey, just checking on your health. And you could see how if you're a king, you're like, huh, I like these guys. I like these guys because I've got these enemies over here. They want me to die. And now here's this other country over here and they're, they're sending me a get well card with some bribes in it. Well, maybe we can be friends after all. So Hezekiah welcomed them and he showed them, these emissaries, all his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Do you remember, I used to say that when you try to bribe the messengers from these other countries by giving them their gold, that's like letting the robber into your house and giving him your stuff. It's like paying the robber to house sit your house. Hezekiah goes one step further. He's not paying the burglar to house sit his house. He's giving the burglar the tour. It's like he was woken up in the middle of the night with the burglar picking his lock. He's like, oh, no, don't, don't pick that lock. Let me let you in. Oh, no, no, you don't want the cash over there. I have a huge pile of cash over here. Here's my ATM card, too. Why don't you take this? That's what Hezekiah's doing here. He's giving the burglars the tour. I'm sure it sounded intelligent to him at the time, but, I mean, there's no way that this is, is the right thing to do. And again, Second Chronicles and Isaiah fills in that he did this because he was being proud. He was being foolish right here. In fact, there's an interesting phrase in Second Chronicles. It says, God did not intervene here. Isaiah is nowhere to be found. God did not intervene so that Hezekiah could realize what was in his own heart. Isn't that a strange phrase? 
that God could have stopped him. But God wanted to let this play out, so, not so that God could see what was in Hezekiah's heart, but so that Hezekiah could see what was in Hezekiah's heart. If you had 15 years to live, like guaranteed by God, and you believed it, like the shadow went back in everything kind of guarantee, okay? Not your pizza will be here in 30 minutes, but the shadow went back in all that. Remember that? Somebody told you you're going to live for 15 more years, and it was guaranteed to you by God. What kind of person would you be? Like you would probably do some cool things. Tom Joyce might go back to flying fighter planes. You could jump off of tall buildings. I mean, you can't die. You're invincible. Right? You got 15 years guaranteed by the Lord. You can do all kinds of crazy things. Would that make you humble? Probably not. Would that make you proud and arrogant? Probably. And so now the Lord is letting Hezekiah see what's in his own heart here. Well, Isaiah looks out his window and sees the Babylonian emissaries walking by with big smiles on their face. So in verse 14, he comes to King Hezekiah and says, uh, what was that about? What did they say? Where did they come from? What's going on here? And Hezekiah said, well, they've come from a far country, from Babylon. That's their name. Isaiah said, uh, what did they see in your house? And Hezekiah answered, well, they've seen all this in my house. There's nothing in my storehouses that I didn't show them. Now, I wonder if it sounded dumber when he said it out loud to Isaiah. <laughs> Have you had that experience before where something sounds legit to you, but then you tell your wife what you did, and you're like, oh, that does not sound as good when I like, put words to it. Um, maybe, maybe Hezekiah had that experience. Isaiah rebukes him, verse 16, hear the word of Yahweh. Behold, the days are coming when all this in your house, and that which your fathers have stored up to this day, will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says Yahweh. Some of your own sons who shall be born to you shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then, and this is the promise here, that you guys, you're going to go down. The Babylonians are going to conquer you. They're going to own you. They're going to destroy you, Hezekiah. And this would sound far-fetched to him. Again, they don't know about Babylon. They don't know about Babylon. It's like hearing, oh, there's, you know, your typical American, my hero, Eritrea is going to be our, our next national enemy. They're going to invade us and own us, and their flag's going to fly over D.C. And you would say, that's, that's crazy talk. Can you even find Eritrea on a map? Hezekiah hears this and believes it. And he gets encouraged by it in this very strange and perverse way. He gets encouraged by it because he says, well, I mean, Babylon's so small. At least it can't happen in my lifetime. That's what he says in verse 19. The, the word of Yahweh that you've spoken is good, for he thought, why not? There will be peace and security in my days. This is not a good response. This is not a good scene here. When he was sick, he was dependent upon the Lord. And now that he's strong and healthy, he is proud and arrogant. Isaiah's not pleased because God's not pleased. They're going to lose everything, Isaiah tells them. The whole line of David's going to go into exile. In fact, notice that phrase. He says the line of David's going to be made into eunuchs. And that, it's not just the graphic promise. It's the promise that a eunuch can't have children. And so it's the promise that the line of David's going to come to an end. In a couple chapters from now, we're going to see the prophets say it's going to be like God taking off his wedding ring and throwing it into the fire. That's what's going to happen to your promises. And again, that would have been surprising. But at least Hezekiah thinks, well, it won't be the Assyrians because they're the army on the horizon. At least that means we'll beat the Assyrians. Understand here, the biggest trial for Hezekiah was not political, it was not military, it was spiritual. C.S. Lewis writes this, When a man is getting better, he understands more and more clearly the evil that is left in him. When a man is getting worse, he understands his badness less and less. 
A moderately bad man knows he's not very good. A thoroughly bad man thinks he's all right. Good people know about both good and evil. Bad people don't know about either. Hezekiah is beginning to see himself there. He's, he's losing track of the evil that is in his heart. Now, interestingly enough, not recorded here, but in Second Chronicles, he, he does repent of this sin. He is broken by this sin. He does confess it to the Lord, and that's why he's a man after God's own heart. Now, summary for us. I want you to put yourself in Isaiah's sandals here, in Isaiah's crown, or Hezekiah's sandals and Hezekiah's crown, Hezekiah's regal staff here. You've got the Assyrians surrounding you and a lethal boil on you. What are you afraid of? Where do you think the danger lies? Easy to think the Assyrians are the danger. Easy to think the boil is the danger. Isn't it interesting that neither of those are the real threat? That's a trick question. None of those are the danger. His real enemy isn't even on his radar. I think the main spiritual application from this passage is that we too often get distracted by things that are not even threats to our spiritual life. We too often get fixated on things that have zero to do with our spiritual health and well-being. We get consumed by our own health. We get distracted by our own finances. We get fixated by things at work. We get bothered by things at home and we take our eyes off of the real threat to our spiritual life, which is going to be pride. It's going to be internal. You guys have seen the video, I'm sure, of that uh, safari in think Tanzania and the cheetah jumps in the back of the Jeep. It's a, a video going around on YouTube right now. A cheetah jumps in the back of the Jeep with the people on safari. Cheetah just hanging out in the back of the Jeep, chewing on the headrest, actually, is what the cheetah is doing. Sniffing the air and chewing and and my favorite part of the story is the guy uploads the video and the reporter from some UK paper had enough sense to ask him this question. How can you be dumb enough to let the cheetah into your Jeep? <laughs> I mean, they, they can eat people. It's kind of what cheetahs do. They're kind of known for that. And the guy said, well, there were, there were three cheetahs and one of them jumped on the hood of the car and the other was down the path in the road. And so we were fixated on the one on the hood of the car. We lost sight of cheetah number three. <laughs> I feel like we're like that spiritual. That's certainly what Hezekiah is like. There's a cheetah on the hood of the car. He's not looking for the real danger. We get so concerned about things that are not even spiritual threats. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul rebukes the Corinthians and says, You gladly bear with fools being wise yourself. For you bear it if someone else makes slaves of you or devours you or takes advantage of you or, or puts on an arrogant tone around you or even hits you in the face. In 2 Corinthians, Corinthians 11 19. You bear so many things that are actual threats because you don't see yourself tempted by them. You see this people, people dealing with sin all the time. People who are, are dealing with lust gets, get focused on that battle in their life and they start measuring their spiritual progress and their spiritual growth by how they're doing in, in that battle and they lose sight of their heartfelt devotion for Christ. People who are consumed by, by anger, they're doing battle with anger and they measure their spiritual growth by how many days it's been since they've been angry at their spouse or whatever and they, don't lose, see, they lose sight of the real spiritual battle which is their devotion to Christ. Their own pride, their own arrogance, they lose sight of that because they're focused on these external things. I really am convinced, I really am convinced that we spend way too much time worrying and praying about things that are not even spiritual threats. We start to measure our own godliness in ways that don't matter. 
and we just get distracted and we let the enemy in the back door. Hezekiah was so concerned about the Assyrians and about his health, he walked the Babylonians around his house. Think of how many Americanized Christians are so concerned about you know, anger or communication principles or, or whatever the sin du jour is of the, of the moment. They neglect their Bible reading. They neglect pursuing Christ through his word. They get so concerned about this or, or that distraction in their life that they just, the, the gods of materialism ring the doorbell and you invite them all in and show them around your house and you're like, oh, I'm, I'm so worried about this or I'm really growing in my area of this or that or the other thing and you're, you're letting materialism just rule your life or letting spiritual apathy move into your house. It doesn't even pay rent. It just lives there. That's the danger. Obviously, our culture is a wealthy culture and we lose track so quickly of materialism. We don't even see it as a threat. We embrace spiritual apathy because we are busy, busy, busy people. I mean, isn't that the standard answer? How are you doing? Oh, I'm, how was this week? I'm so busy. And when you say that, next time you say the word busy, just stop yourself and say what you're confessing when you say I'm so busy what you're confessing is that you don't care about the right things. Just let that truth resonate in your heart. You have filled your life with so much that doesn't matter that your eyes go straight to how busy you are with things that aren't that significant. Hezekiah is kind of a famous king in Israel's history. You know why? He built a tunnel. It's a cool tunnel. I've talked to you about it before. If you go to Israel, you get to walk through it. And it's, I mentioned this before, but it's priceless to see the faces and the Israelis, the appearance in the Israelis' faces as all the Americans in water shoes and headlamps, you know, schlog out of the, the rain gutter. I think it's quite amusing. And that's what Hezekiah put so much of his effort into. So much. I love that it gets a footnote here at the end of the chapter. Just a little footnote almost. I think, I think it's almost sarcastically here. Uh, you're going to be taken into captivity. Verse 20, the rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made the pool and the conduit. Ah, neat tunnel. Tourists can go into it for a thousand years. They brought water in the city. Aren't they written in the book of Chronicles, Kings of Judah? Again, you want to read about that tunnel? You can buy a ticket to Tel Aviv, take the bus up to Jerusalem and walk through. It's fun. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Hezekiah, while he may be remembered for his tunnel by people, He's remembered by the Lord for his faithfulness, his quickness to repent, his devotion for the line of David. I pray that would be true of you. I pray that you'd be quick to repent of sins, that your heart would be thoroughly devoted, that you would understand that in sickness, God is often directing you to more wholehearted worship because in sickness is where the distraction goes away. As you guard yourself in health, don't take your eyes off of wholehearted devotion to Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you are the perfect Savior. You're the sinless Son of God who came to earth to guide, to do the Father's will, to be our, our substitute. And now that you've saved us, Lord, you, you do guide our days. We know that there are trials in life, there are real trials in life that do present real spiritual difficulties. But we know that behind those trials is your loving hand. As you let the Babylonians come to Hezekiah to reveal what was in his own heart, you let trials come into our life to reveal what is in our own hearts. 
So Lord, I do earnestly pray that our hearts would be on the lookout, that they would be on the alert for real spiritual dangers. They would not be so easily distracted. And I pray, Lord, that we would see every day, every moment, every trial as from your hand to guide us into a richer relationship with you. Help us cherish the sickness because it causes our hearts to expand. Help us guard against fleeting joys because they cause spiritual apathy. Help us delight in your tender and providential care. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel with Pastor Jesse Johnson. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.